Good morning. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday, the 6th of October. Welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with the day's business and finance headlines. Hong Kong Financial Secretary Paul Chan said yesterday that Chief Executive John Lee will roll out bold measures to revive Hong Kong's economy in his first policy address in two weeks' time. Mr Chan noted that the SAR's economy, especially its exports, had been affected by the not very positive external environments, including interest rate hikes, inflation and geopolitical challenges. He said Hong Kong's outlook is not positive at all for the short term, adding that the city will unavoidably record economic contraction for 2022 and that next year will still be pretty challenging. But Mr Chan said his confidence about the city's medium to long term development. Oxfam Hong Kong said on Wednesday that the wealth gap in the SAR had widened during the pandemic and had now reached a critical point as it urged the government to announce plans for tackling poverty in the upcoming policy address. Representatives of the NGO cited official statistics showing that the richest 10% of local households brought in 47 times the sum brought home by the poorest 10% during the first quarter of this year. That compared to a multiple of 34 in 2019. British airline Virgin Atlantic yesterday announced it will axe its London Heathrow to Hong Kong services and close its Hong Kong, excuse me, and close its Hong Kong office after 30 years in the city. Virgin had planned to restart Hong Kong services in March 2023. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by wealth management strategist Enzio von Fahl and Andrew Sullivan from Outset Global. With a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold at Safebrook Group. US stocks fell on Wednesday after notching their best two-day gain in over two years to start the fourth quarter. The S&P 500 lost 0.2% to close at 3,783, having risen 3% on Tuesday and 2.6% the previous day. The Dow recovered from losses of 430 points at the low of the day to close 42 points or 0.1% lower at 30,274. The Dow's combined two-day gain on Monday and Tuesday was almost 1,600 points. The Nasdaq Composite slid a third of a percent to 11,148 after adding a combined 5.7% over the first two days of the quarter. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index slid 1%. The UK's FTSE 100 closed half a percent lower. Hong Kong stocks soared on Wednesday as investors returned from the public holiday to play catch-up with the global rally. By the close, the Hang Seng Index had surged 1,008 points, that's 5.9%, recovering the 18,000 mark to close at 18,088 in its best daily gain since March. Technology shares fueled the rally, with the Hang Seng Tech Index soaring 7.5%. HSBC jumped 5.7% after the bank said it was considering selling its Canadian business, one of the biggest international banking brands in the country. HSBC is under pressure from its biggest shareholder, Ping An Insurance Group, to break up its operations and spin off its Asian business. And shares of electric vehicle maker BYD jumped over 9% in Hong Kong after it reported a 187% increase in passenger vehicle sales for September compared to a year ago. 
In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 1.7% higher at $93.37 a barrel after OPEC Plus agreed an oil reduction, output reduction of 2 million barrels per day. That's about 2% of global output. Gold this morning is $7 lower at $1,718 an ounce. On Wednesday, bond yields rose sharply with the rate on the 10-year US Treasury note climbing 12 basis points to 3.75% after briefly dipping below 3.6% in the previous session. And the Bank of England said it bought no gilts for a second consecutive day under its emergency programme to calm the gilt market that triggered last week's liquidity crisis at some pension funds. Long-dated yields rose to their highest levels in a week. 30-year UK gilt yields jumped 22 basis points higher on the day to 4.25%. And the US dollar index rose yesterday following five days of losses, climbing 1% to 111.19. The index was trading as high as 114.78 last week, and the five days before Wednesday saw the biggest drop in the dollar since March 2020. The euro this morning is 1% lower at 99 cents. The Japanese yen is at 144.5 versus the greenback. Sterling weakened 1.4% against the dollar after UK Prime Minister Liz Truss defended her state-funded tax cuts in a push for economic growth at the Conservative Party conference yesterday. Right now, one British pound buys $1.13.5 and eight Hong Kong dollars and 91 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan is trading at 7.07 against the dollar this morning and Bitcoin holding just above $20,000 at $20,200. Taking a look around Asia-Pacific markets this morning as they open up. Uh, in Australia, the SX200 down 0.1%. Nikkei 225 in Japan up 0.4%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is up half a percent. And it looks like a flat opening for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Time's just gone 8.09. Let's welcome wealth management strategist Enzio von Fowl, who's always with us on the Thursday morning. Morning, morning Enzio. Peter. And joining him, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Welcome back, Andrew. Good morning. Let's start in Hong Kong. Paul Chan, Financial Secretary, said yesterday that Chief Executive John Lee will roll out bold measures to revive Hong Kong's economy in his first policy address in two weeks' time. He noted that the SAR's economy, especially its exports, has been affected by the not very positive external environment, including interest rate hikes, inflation and geopolitical challenges. And he warns that the city is going to record economic contraction for this year. And the environment is still going to be pretty challenging next year. But he is confident, he says, about the city's medium-term to long-term development and particularly confident about the continuing development of our country, given the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Greater Bay Area. And he says uh, we will take a more proactive attitude to adopt bold measures to stimulate our economic development and provide new economic impetus. Um, so, Enzio, what sort of measures would you like to see in the uh, in the uh, policy address that are going to make a difference to our economy? I think before I start, just in the long run, we're all dead, said Lord Keynes. So I suspect that's going to happen. Um, I think, first of all, reintroducing English would be very, very important to get us back into an international financial centre 
ameliorating the stranglehold of some of the cartels, in other words, don't kill them, but at least ameliorate it, mm. um, allow more people into Hong Kong, enhancing middle-class education, very, very important, particularly vocational training. And regarding this GBA initiative, the Greater Bay Area, um, what will we specifically of Hub Kong bring to the party? I don't quite know, to be honest with you, because we seem to have fallen back so much educationally that it's raising the minimum wage by 21% just isn't going to hack it with the poverty. Do you, do you think you, you suggest education is a big issue? Do, yes. Are you saying that we're not really producing people with the right skills for a modern job environment? Yes, this is a worldwide problem, especially for the middle class education, not for the not for the college and university and polytechnics, but for the middle class of the people who don't have the the money to go to university. I think that that's where we really need to to sort of do something as as he would say bold. Andrew. Well, I think the key thing is, uh, you know, we've always been um, looking out. We've been looking, you know, we've been the international hub for the interface to China. So the idea of going into the Guangdong area, I mean, there, there frankly just isn't any low-flying you know, fruit there. I mean, the, the, the Chinese financial institutions have been operating there for years. Um, and, you know, us looking to try and chisel something out of that, I think, will be very difficult. Historically, we've done very well at, at being the interface between the rest of the world and China, and I think that's what we need to revert back to doing. Will it make a difference when we can uh, start tra at least travelling again to the Greater Bay Area? Because at the moment, the problem is, although we want to have uh, this large economic area, um, we can't get to it very easily. Will that change once the, uh, you know, once the borders are fully reopened with the mainland? Well, it'll obviously make things easier, but I mean, I, I really don't think that the Greater Bay Area is going to be a huge driver for Hong mm. Kong. I mean, what what can we add that people like, um, you know, Hai Tung and the other financial industry behemoths uh, have, have not already given to it? Mm. Um, you know, you can set up new government, you can build new houses, but, you know, as we're currently seeing, the housing situation in, in China is, is just uh, collapsing. Are we doing something wrong here in Hong Kong? Paul Chan suggests that the problems are external, things like rising um, interest rates and so on. But is it just external factors? Don't we have some issues here? Because we have suffered now three recessions in the last four years. That's more than most other major economies. I think it's very much Hong Kong to blame everybody else for our problems. And I think a lot of this mess has been homemade. I think this stranglehold on COVID, which was not really decreed by Beijing, and this severity from the people I've spoken with, that that really did us in. Um, also, the previous government, I think, just so it's it's we all know about the, the the outside environment. I mean, there's nothing original in what he's saying, but I think we really have to look inwardly, which was not going to happen. Unfortunately, they'll just do study upon study upon study and prevaricate yet again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the trouble is we've we've you know aligned ourselves with China for political reasons uh, and, and sometimes you know those haven't been very well justified um, and we you know there's been a, a huge amount of confusion over COVID which we seem to be the only place in the world that hasn't realized we've got it wrong and, and corrected it. Mm. What about exports? That's a major contributor to our economy. They are suffering um, aren't they? What can we do there to, to try and uh, turn that around? 
not a whole lot because the U.S. is slowing down. You see that in the job openings figures, which are the, they're the worst in, in about two years, I believe. Um, and the, the market expectation is clearly that the unemployment will rise, and that's, of course, then going to lead into a recession. So globally, we all know that the OECD has been bleeding this for some time now, that the global economy is, is slowing down. So um, the exports from Hong Kong and the re-exports in particular will continue suffering. It, it's, it's, that's just the fact of the, that is truly an outside world problem. But it doesn't, it doesn't mitigate the fact that we have to go, start doing things on the inside. If you don't like change, you would like irrelevant even, irrelevance even less. Are we, Andrew, going to be looking at new markets elsewhere? Is that uh, part of the issue? Maybe uh, Southeast Asia? Well, I think we've got to re-establish ourselves as, as what we were historically, which was a great financial hub for China. Mm. Um, we were the interface. It was easy to travel here. Language was English. It was easy to communicate. Um, and we really were the herald for China and, and making things easy. And especially the, you know, the rule of law here. Um, people wanted their contracts done here because it was easy. But because the government decided to, you know, to you know, enhance the zero COVID, we as a financial hub have slipped behind even Singapore now. And whilst I think when we open up, there's a good chance that recovery will be quite quick, um, whether we manage to actually regain all the title, it remains to be seen. I think we're very scarred, the economy. It's, it's, and those scars go very, very deeply. So that's going to take time to repair them. Well, yeah. not, and you're not, not even going to get a 100% repair. So, yeah, sorry, Andrew. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, the, the reality is a lot of people have left Hong Kong. That's a lot of talent and a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge. And a lot of that will not come back. So how do we replace that? That's, uh, Mr. Lee's already said that that's going to be a key part of his policy speech, dealing with the talent issue, how to uh, get talent to come to Hong Kong. And what can we do? But I think it's, I mean, there has to be a realisation that instead of just looking as we did a couple of years ago at having more mainlanders here to do more business with the mainland, I mean, the mainland is slowing down. It, you know, its property and its financial sector are in crisis. So we are not going to be driven by what happens in China because China is suffering. So what we need to do and ideally could do is China becomes, you know, our client. We go out again as we used to do historically and bring clients into China. Mm. Oxfam said yesterday that the wealth gap in Hong Kong had widened during the p pandemic and it was now at a critical point. They say the richest 10% of local households brought in 47 times the sum brought home by, by the poorest 10% during the first quarter of this year. And that's up from a multiple of 34 in 2009 um, and is calling for um, an increase in the minimum wage from 37.5 Hong Kong dollars to 45.4. He said that higher wage floor would benefit almost 340,000 low paid workers and cover 9% of the workforce. Let me ask you both first of all, um, this widening um, income gap, how damaging is it for Hong Kong's economy? I think it's it's pretty it, it's quite despicable because and it is not it does not help politically if you income discrepancies of that garishness really don't add to political stability in in anywhere in the world. I mean, look at the French Revolution, for instance. Mm. So, I, and I but I must say that also raising the wage by twenty one percent, the minimum up to forty forty five dollars forty, that's not going to cut it either. I get, I get back to this vocational training because that's we all need plumbers and electricians and roof repair 
repairers and painters, and those jobs just aren't being done anymore. Mm. I think the other thing you've got to remember that mm. you know, the, the part of the reason that this gap has occurred is because a lot of those low-paid jobs in restaurants have, have gone because of zero COVID. You know, those are small businesses that had to shut down. The government gave money to people like Maxims, who were never going to go bust, but to the mum-and-pop operators who were employing two or three local staff, those jobs have disappeared. <coughs> mm. So, so gov government really has to you know, really look when it offers benefits as to who is actually getting those benefits and whether they are being targeted correctly. We do have one of the lowest minimum wages in the world. What, what would be wrong with, with raising that? It's just more pressure on, on small businesses. I mean, on larger businesses, yes, they, they've got the scope to, to be able to accommodate that. But when you are just a, you know, a household running a small restaurant or a small uh, stationery store or something like that, it, it makes a big difference. Mm. And, and it just means that you can't afford to employ so many people. So you, you increase the wage and you have one worker rather than two. Mm. Well, you mentioned earlier the China economy, which is obviously slowing and facing problems in the property sector and the financial sector. Two weeks to go until the 20th National Congress. President Xi Jinping is expected to be given an unprecedented third five-year term, making him the most powerful Chinese leader in modern times. Ahead of the event, China's economic performance and President Xi's role in it is coming under increasing scrutiny outside of China. There was um, a widely commented on article in the Financial Times yesterday uh, from Martin Wolf, who warned that when you have a leader with unchallengeable power, it's often the case that reforms halt, decision-making slows, foolish decisions go unchallenged and remain unchallenged. And he points to the zero COVID policy as an example of that. And he said that reforms um, have been avoided um, and the country hasn't dealt with fundamental macroeconomic problems such as excess savings and its dependency on excess investments. Um, so first of all, what, what do you make of that? So I, I presume you saw that article, um, NZO. What, what do you make of it? Well, I don't really rate Martin Wolf as a practical China expert. Um, I call him sort of the Wizard of Wolf because he thinks that if we um, undermine the SOEs a little bit and have less strict controls on private sector businesses, that it's all going to be singly ding and up, up and away we go. Um, he's also, of course, suggesting this arcane thing with savings and investments, which frankly I don't follow. I think China's problem is much more, is much simpler, which is that the, as, as, as we all know, and even the OECD is saying this in many major investment houses, it's the COVID, the, the zero COVID that, that's really done China in. You don't need to have, you don't really need to write an article about that. We all know that. I think the, the other thing you've got to really you know, take in mind is, you know, look at the example of Putin. He's been there for over 10 mm. years um, and he's just recently invaded Ukraine, which is hardly a good recommendation. But on the, there, there, there is a point there, isn't there, that China relied very heavily on investment to drive its economy yes. for a long period of time. And for a while... That was a good thing. Um, it worked. But eventually you run out of productive projects that you can invest in um, and the return on them um, slows. And the price for that is paid by ultimately households. They're the ones that end up suffering and, and in effect financing that. So they have got to do something, haven't they? They can't keep on with this investment driven model, driving up debt year after year. Um, and at the same time, um, households aren't spending. I think you're right on that. Um, but I also think that with Trump, etc., and, and the U.S. having forced decoupling on everybody, that China understandably is now turning a little bit anti-foreign and doesn't want all those foreigners coming in with the technology transfer. So that's, that's mm. another nail in the coffin.
I think the other thing, you know, China had many years where it could have reformed its pension system and its tax mm. system, mm. And, it, and it chose not to. Instead, it chose to um, consolidate power in the party, uh, take over from you know, the relaxation and allowing private enterprise to take more of a lead. So it's really, you know, once again, it's put ideology in, 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 in front of the economy. Um, and until that changes, then I don't think China has a you know, a, a, an optimistic outlook. Especially with the demographics going the way they are. Again, this fabulous book by Professor Scott Rosal of Stanford, Invisible China, is really a must-read for people because it's the 900 million rural people who really aren't being, again, educated, in my mind. It's hard to be in my bond. I just think that's very important mm. to, to, to get those jobs of the future. But if you could get um, pensions up and if you could get a better support system, that would encourage people, wouldn't it, to rely less on building up a pot of savings to support themselves and would increase consumption. But the problem with that is it's going to take many, many years to do. Yes, I mean, it, it's, you know, they've missed the opportunity of it. And now, now people don't believe in the government. I mean, now that you're seeing people not get the houses delivered, they certainly don't believe in the government's going to give them a pension at the end of the day. Mm. And hence, you know, the, the, they see an even further requirement to, to build up those extra mm. savings. Um, and whilst a lot of people think that post-zero COVID, when things relax, that people will go out and spend, the reality is that over the last three years, people have lost an awful lot of income because of lockdowns. Mm. Well, it's a topic we're going to talk about a lot more leading up to the National Congress, mm. China's economy and the structural problems um, it's facing and how they might be addressed um, after the Congress. In the meantime, thank you both very much. You heard there Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global and Wealth Management Strategist, Enzio von File. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-four on the phone now from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Now, several media outlets are reporting that the U.S. Commerce Department plans this week to announce sweeping new restrictions on China's access to U.S. semiconductor uh, technology. Apparently, the Biden administration will roll out a package of export controls uh, to govern which semiconductor technologies can be exported um, to China and it will severely limit the ability of both US companies and non-US companies to sell products that contain US technology to Chinese groups. And Ross, what, what's the impact of this going to be? Well, it's great for lawyers who will have to advise companies on compliance with the new rules and it'll be a big headache for uh, salespeople, uh, they're going to make less money and uh, ultimately for shareholders of these U.S. companies. But clearly the, the one direction that seems to be a consensus in, among policymakers in the U.S., whether in the Biden administration or previously in the Trump administration and members of Congress is one space or a safe space that the U.S. could be in in its relationship with China is to take steps to restrict China's ability to access latest technologies, uh, especially in, in the semiconductor manufacturing uh, space. And of course, the interesting thing there is uh, over time, there's always improvements. There's always something new. So if today we say, well, we're going to restrict China's access to the latest technologies uh, over time, uh, the, what was the latest technologies today will become older technologies. But uh, the U.S. can keep uh, imposing new restrictions as technologies uh, develop uh, and uh, 
You know, is this going to work? You know, we don't know because this is a new trend within the last couple of years, and it's easy for us to say that uh, you know, it's just going to really constrict China's ability to put the latest chips in, in cars, in, in consumer electronics, in weapons. Uh, but, of course, we shouldn't underestimate China's ability to conduct its own research and development and eventually catch up, however long or expensive that process might be. I mean, so far, the evidence tends to suggest that these sanctions on, on technology have had an effect, haven't they? Because they have slowed down China's ability, because it, it's still a long way behind, as you say, in developing its own uh, semiconductor manufacturing capabilities. So it has had an impact, it seems. Uh, for sure. Uh, there'll be a point in time, whether it's today or, or six months from now next year, that it might very well be the case that the latest new gadget uh, might have a better chip uh, if you're buying it in the United States or Western Europe or somewhere else outside of China. And uh, that, that might become very frustrating for Chinese consumers. I wouldn't say we're necessarily quite there yet, but it's certainly a, a reality that that might happen. And that's part of the reason uh, for for the policy, but again, the, the, the medium to long-term uh, effect of this policy really remains to be seen because it's still so new. What does this mean for Taiwanese companies like Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, for example, which is um, a, a big supply of technology to the U.S., manufactures a lot of its technology, has plants, a new plant that it's opening up in the U.S.? Um, does it put uh, companies like that in a difficult position? Well, they, they continue to emphasize that uh, historically China made up a relatively small percentage of their sales with all the new restrictions in recent years. That mix uh, has changed uh, further. China's less of their revenue. U.S. customers, Western uh, countries, European customers can easily make up because the demand has been there, especially during COVID work from home. Uh, so the demand has been there, at least according to the companies, that, that they have the demand to make up for loss of China business. And they are in a tough spot because uh, at least the corporate world, as opposed to the political world here in Taiwan, they can't say that they don't like this. I think it's fair to say that they don't like it because they want to make as much money as possible, whether it was from the U.S. and Europe or from China as well. So they certainly had a lot of hopes uh, for the China market going forward. Uh, there was the demand there uh, and they're going to lose that revenue. And is this another problem that President Xi Jinping will have to deal with in his third term? Are we going to see after the National Congress in a couple of weeks um, time, is he going to turn his attention to the domestic economy, which is facing quite a lot of headwinds at the moment? Oh, for, for sure. And, and uh, whatever moment in time we look at over, say, the past 20, 25 years, some kind of global crisis, Asian financial crisis, Iraq war, 2008 financial crisis, China has always found a way to spend its, spend its way out of these situations. I would expect more of the same. But if we link it to what we were talking about with the tech industry, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to say we're just going to pour a lot of cement and build, build new infrastructure. But clearly, there's going to have to be an enormous amount of investment, even more investment in the tech industry, and that will take away some, some of the spending that might have gone to other places in the economy. 
Okay, Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, a little bit of a mixed picture around Asia-Pacific stock markets at the moment. The ASX 200 in Australia is up 0.1%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about 0.6%. The Cosby in South Korea um, is surging ahead over one and a quarter percent now, and it looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning here in Hong Kong. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for the final time this week with Money Talk coming up after the news back chat with Danny Gittings and Jenny Lamb. The weather forecast, sunny periods, a few showers. The maximum temperature is going to be around 31 degrees and then the outlook is for a few showers and sunny intervals in the next couple of days. It's 28 degrees right now, 77% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.31, here's Vicky Wong with the Half Hour News. Uh, sorry, Peter, it's Andy Sharofsky. The governor of Ukraine's Lugansk region says his country's forces have recaptured six villages there since Tuesday amid continuing counteroffensives. Sergei Haidai told the BBC it was the beginning of operations to free his region from Russian occupation. His comments come as Ukrainian forces are reported to be pushing towards a key Russian-held supply route. An advisor to the Ukraine president, Alexander Radnyansky, said the Russian troops were weakened and would not be able to hold on to the territory that they'd taken. The Russians are demoralized. They're giving up. They're um, voluntarily becoming prisoners of war now. They don't want to fight. And the more successes we run up and the more failures they run up, uh, the, the more this is going to continue. So I think even during the winter time, we're going to have success and we'll be able to recapture a lot of the territory. Meanwhile, President Putin has signed a decree to take control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine, which has been occupied by Russian troops since the early days of the war. North Korea has fired two ballistic missiles into the sea as the United Nations Security Council met to discuss Pyongyang, er, Pyongyang's earlier highly provocative launch of a missile over Japan. The launch is Pyongyang's sixth in less than two weeks and comes two days after it fired an intermediate-range ballistic missile over Japan, prompting Tokyo to raise a rare evacuation warning. South Korea's military said it had detected two short-range ballistic missiles launched from the Samsuk region in Pyongyang toward the the East Sea, also known as the Sea of Japan. Brazilian Senator Simone Tebet, a centrist who finished third in Sunday's first round of the presidential election, says she's supporting the left-wing candidate Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva in the runoff vote against the far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. I will vote for Lula because I recognize in Lula his commitment to democracy and to the Constitution, which I do not recognize in the current president. And back to local news, the police have launched a new online search engine called Scam Meter to help the public detect scams after a surge in fraud cases. People can now search for information such as names and phone numbers when they receive suspicious calls or unsolicited messages. Wilson Fan is a superintendent from the Force's Cybersecurity and Technology Crime Bureau. Our database is big and uh, is quite unique because the daily police reports will be indexed in our database. And so uh, to enrich our database, we have uh, invited uh, the Hong Kong Junk Corps or another tech company like uh, Checkpoint to provide the data for our indexing. I hope uh, our search engine can uh, raise the awareness of the citizen and provide a comprehensive tool for them to, to avoid uh, the uh, cyber pitfall. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. Your guest presenter this morning is Jenny Lamb. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. In our main topic today, we'll be looking at the growing calls for a further easing of COVID-19 restrictions. New rules come into force today, lifting the cap to 12 people per table in restaurants and six people per table in bars. But some experts say it's time to go even further and drop the four-person limit on public gatherings and possibly even abandon the use of the Leave Home Safe app altogether. The government has also begun easing restrictions on the aviation industry, dropping the closed-loop bubble arrangement for local air crews while they're overseas. But that hasn't stopped Virgin Atlantic from scrapping its flights to Hong Kong after 30 years of serving the city. So what do you think of these latest developments? You can leave a message on our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233 That's 233 